On Friday, February the 18th, Jack, you might want to turn me down just a little bit. Sounds a little overpowering. There we go. On Friday, February the 18th this year, Reverend Gordon Whitelock, who was the founder and director of Camp Penile, went to be with the Lord. Internment will be held at the ranch at Camp Penile at Marble Falls on Monday. That'll be tomorrow, February 21st at 2 p.m. The memorial service will be held this Wednesday, 23 February at Bethel Independent Presbyterian Church located on Bering Drive at 2 p.m. For those of you who may not know, Gordon Whitelaw came to Houston, Texas with his young bride, Alice, just after they graduated from Moody Bible Institute in the early 1930s. He came to pastor the what was then known as the Pierce Junction Bible Church, one of the few Bible churches in Houston. As a young boy in his native New England, Gordon loved athletics, he loved to hike, he loved to camp, he loved the outdoors. When he became a pastor, he took this love for the outdoors and for camping, and he used it to uh, build relationships and to witness to the young people in his church. He enjoyed taking young boys on camping trips, teaching them the Bible and giving them the gospel. In the late 30s, an organization was started by some students at Dallas Seminary that started out of Stearns Hall at Dallas Seminary called Young Life. Gordon Whitelock was one of five men who started Young Life and began to uh, develop what was called Young Life Clubs in Houston. These were after-school Bible studies to evangelize and teach teenagers the Word of God. It was at one of those Young Life meetings that He led my mother to the Lord back in the early 1940s. During the 40s, he also started a camp, Camp Summer Camping Ministry with young people, and they would go up to Double Lake State Park just north of Houston, and that grew into a tremendous ministry that is now located west of Austin at Marble Falls. During the 40s and the 50s, many of the church leaders... Many of the men who would later become church leaders in Houston were led to the Lord or got their first opportunities at leadership at Camp Penile. Hundreds, literally hundreds of pastors and missionaries from the Houston surrounding area were either led to the Lord or got their initial training at Camp Penile. And through them, thousands upon thousands of believers have been impacted and richly blessed through Gordon Whitelock's dedication to the Lord and application of the Word in his life. As a young boy, I got to go to Camp Penile, and as a teenager, Chief demonstrated his tremendous grace orientation by giving me opportunities to teach the Bible and to be involved in various kinds of ministries, including teaching uh, Sunday school at the Bernard Balin Home uh, for Boys here in Houston. Of all the pastors and missionaries, seminary professors and theologians and everyday believers that I have known, no one has ever exemplified the grace of God, the character of Jesus Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, the genuine humility of a believer, and the steadfast endurance in the Christian life like Gordon Whitelock. He exemplified to so many what it means to run 
the race with endurance and to fight the good fight. When I was a counselor at camp, thinking about going to, going to seminary, he challenged me with a verse in Philippians 3 that Paul wrote to the Philippians that they should be as shining lights in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. Though Gordon Whitelock is now absent from the body and face to face with the Lord and rejoicing in the presence of his Savior, the lights in this world are a bit dimmer in this pale of darkness with his passing. I thank God that he had the privilege to have known a man like that and encountered him as a friend and a guide and a mentor. I know some of you knew him, and his ministry is, is re- all the more remarkable because very few people in the Houston area recognize that there were just a handful of, of pastors and people in ministry in the Houston area in the 40s and 50s that really laid the foundation for the solid group of believers that are here in Houston. And Gordon Whitelock was one of those men. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, to make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for the way you provide for the church. You provide faithful men who teach your word, faithful men who grow to spiritual maturity to lead the church, faithful men who are in turn able to pass on the sound teaching that they were given, and that down through the 2,000 years of church history, the church, the body of Christ, His beloved bride has grown and matured because of the faithfulness of prepared men, men who are willing to commit their entire lives to serving the Lord Jesus Christ and teaching, guiding, leading, and directing the local church. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to stand upon their shoulders, to benefit from the hard work, the sacrifice, the diligence of these men who have gone before. Father, we thank you for your word, the fact that we have your word in our language and that so many gave their lives so that we could have the word of God in our language and that we could read what you have revealed to us. Father, never let us take these things for granted. Now, Father, as we come to your word this evening, we pray that you would challenge us that we would be responsive to the Holy Spirit as he takes these things and applies them to our lives, and that as a congregation, as a church, we might be mindful and take heed of what you say. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and we're continuing our study of the first of the seven epistles 
to these seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We are in this first epistle to the church of Ephesus, which was the second largest of these churches and the oldest of the congregations of these churches. It was first established, as we've studied, uh, by the Apostle Paul on his... Well, actually, it was established before he arrived, but he finally arrived on his second missionary journey, and then he spent some three years there on his third missionary journey. And during those almost three years that he was there, missionaries, young men, went out from that congregation to the towns and villages throughout Asia, taking the gospel, witnessing, teaching the word, and establishing churches throughout the western part of what is now uh, Turkey. The events of Revelation chapter 2 take place some, some 30 years later. Paul was there in approximately 62 to 65 A.D. And now it is approximately 95 A.D. And the Lord Jesus Christ is giving a church evaluation report, a congregational evaluation report given in these seven epistles. And to the church of Ephesus, he writes to the angel of the congregation of Ephesus, write these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. This establishes his judicial authority, that Jesus Christ is the one who has authority over the angels. He was elevated over the angels at his ascension and session and therefore he has the right to execute judgment in human history. He is the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, which emphasizes his present active ministry as priest judge in the life of the church during the church age. The report begins in verse 2, where we read, I know your works. This is the opening line in all seven of these Epistles. It may not be there in your version, but in the majority text, each one begins with this phrase. And it should be understood to mean, I know your production. It's a summary statement. Jesus Christ, as the omnipresent Lord of the universe, is fully aware of everything that is going on in every congregation. Nothing is hidden. He knows the strengths and the weaknesses of everyone. And because He is our pure judge... And because he is the one elevated to the right hand of God the Father and the one to whom all judgment has been given according to John 5, he is the one that is working in the midst of the congregations in the church age to bring them to spiritual maturity or to, as we'll see in the warning section, to remove their lampstand, which is a sign of discipline on the congregation because it fails to... Uh, pursue spiritual maturity. So it begins with the summary statement, I know your works. And then we have three groupings of couplets, three couplets actually, your labor and your uh, patience. Uh, your labor and your patience. The labor there is the Greek word kapos, which indicates their toil in 
Christian service. This is not just talking about their spiritual life growth. It's talking about their spiritual service. And we did a study where we went through a number of passages in the New Testament which emphasizes this word and its usage in reference to spiritual service that the Apostle Paul used it many times to refer to the hardships that he encountered as an apostle as he traveled on his journeys, the not only the sufferings he encountered just because he was traveling in an extremely, or what we would consider to be a pretty primitive environment, but also because he encountered uh, active opposition. There were many times that he was thrown in jail, that he was beaten, that there were uh, he was taken before various magistrates, and there was always opposition, yet he stuck with it, and he labored. So this is what that word refers to. The second word there translated patience in the New King James is the word hupomone, which means to endure, to hang in there in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of testing, to consistently apply the word, to not give up, in taking in the Word of God, to not give up in the application of the Word, to not give up in the application of the faith rest drill, no matter what the opposition may be that we encounter. So he commends them for their labor and for their endurance. The second group of couplets are are related, that you cannot bear or uh, carry those who are evil. And here it is a reference to those in the congregation who are espousing false doctrine. And we studied that in uh, Acts, the, uh, Acts chapter 19, the apostle had visited briefly on his way home on his third missionary journey and had met with the pastors from Ephesus and had warned them that there would be uh, wolves in sheep's clothing that would come up even from among themselves who would teach false doctrine and seek to lead astray those in the congregation. So he says, uh, commends them that they cannot bear or put up with or tolerate those who are evil. And the word there that is used for evil is the Greek word kakos. And the word kakos is important to understand here. This is not talking about inherent evil. This is the word that is talking about uh, evil actions. And this would relate to false teaching as demonstrated by the second part of this particular uh, sentence. Uh, The New King James, probably King James, puts a period after evil. There should not even be a comma there. They are related that you cannot bear those who are evil and have tested those who say they are apostles. This goes together. And uh, the word kakos is... A synonym of another Greek word for evil, uh, poneros, which P-O-N-E-R-O-S, which has to do with inherent evil. And so this is not talking about evil per se, but it is talking about the production of evil, which is not just sin, but evil is the as a summary of everything that's produced by the sin nature. This can include human good and often does include a tremendous amount of human good under the guise of religion. And religion is always more popular with the masses than biblical teaching, and especially when you live in a culture that is in negative volition and is in spiritual decline 
what you see is that the popularity of false teaching far surpasses the popularity of sound biblical teaching. And the more content you have to your messages, the more uh, in-depth your Bible study, the more you seek to challenge the presuppositions of human viewpoint thinking and pagan thinking in the minds of the congregation, the fewer and fewer people are attracted to that. It's just too difficult. It's just too challenging. I have to think. You hear all kinds of excuses. And what people want to hear is they want to come and be stroked. They want to have somebody tell them how, uh, how much God loves them. And they don't want to be challenged with the demands of the spiritual life. They don't want to hear, as Paul just mentioned, that living the spiritual life and being involved in the ministry, whatever that ministry may be where God can use you, is often Toilsome. It often involves a tremendous amount of personal effort and commitment, and it may involve giving up a number of things that we enjoy doing. And that's true for every single one of us. As I look back over the last 25 years of my life in ministry, I look at a lot of things that I used to enjoy doing, still would enjoy doing them. But I don't have time for them anymore because there's a higher priority, and that's teaching the Word and studying the Word. And the more each of us matures in our life, the more we realize that we that the battle really isn't as much over doing something that is wrong or sinful versus that which is right. The issue is choosing between that which is good and that which is better. And those are difficult decisions to make, but it comes down to spiritual maturity and comes down to part of what we'll see in this in this evaluation is what the, where the priority should be, what is of ultimate value and ultimate importance. So Paul says that he, he commends them because on the one hand they cannot tolerate those who are evil. And this is a, a, a sense of the word in which they just will not allow someone to come in the midst of the congregation and promote false teaching, legalism, any form of doctrinal error. And he goes on to expound on what that involves, and that's the next clause, and you have tested those who say they are apostles. And the word, therefore, apostle, or for testing, is the word we've run into a few times before. It's the word perazzo. P-E-I-R-A-Z-O. And this comes from a root that has to do with smelting metal. It's purifying metal. It is putting metal to the, the fire in order to burn off impurities. It is a form of evaluation. Now, it differs from the word or the verb dokimazo, which has the idea of putting something to the test in order to see what is of value and what, is, uh, uh, what can be approved. Perazzo focuses more on the testing aspect as opposed to the results of the testing. And what this shows is the congregation had high standards, and they maintained their standards. And see, one of the things that we need to emphasize here at West Houston Bible Church is excellence. And this is part of that, that we want to pursue excellence in in everything that we do. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to always be the best there is. There's a difference. But But we're going to maintain high standards. We're going to give it all that we have. Now, we may not have all the talent 
and all of the ability that some other congregation may have. But that's not the issue. The issue is that we are not going to settle for mediocrity in, at any area. We're going to give it our very best, whatever that is. And that is going to work itself out in many different arenas. We're going to uh, let that work itself out in prep school. We're going to pursue excellence in everything that we do in prep school, in the curriculum that we structure, in the teaching, in the training that we provide for our young people. Everything that we do from nursery all the way up through through high school, we're going to pursue excellence. Uh, I personally challenge myself continuously in uh, overheads and slides and graphics, trying to always improve upon what I am doing. Same thing will be true for anything that is the production of of this church. Now, when you're just getting started, we always have to recognize that in that first year or so, there's a tremendous learning curve, and we're going to make uh, mistakes, and that's fine. We just have a grace-oriented attitude, and we say, well, we're learning, and we're just going to keep keep moving. We're going to, uh, who knows what will happen in the process, but we're, the goal is to pursue excellence, and one area of excellence should always be in teaching. I personally believe in quality. We live in an era today when people are willing to compromise at the level of quality, especially in the training of pastors and the training of teachers. For example, we have monthly meetings right now for those who will be involved in prep schools. We get our prep school established. This will be one factor we continue. How can we help the teachers to improve upon what they're doing? Always always pushing, not from a perspective of being judgmental. You can always do that when, in some organizations when they're pursuing excellence. There's a, almost a negative fear factor there. But when you're a congregation and church, you can have a pursuit of excellence but be relaxed because everybody's grace-oriented. It's not a lowering the standard. It's keeping the standard high but maintaining a relaxed mental attitude in the process. And this is what the Ephesian congregation did. When these false teachers came in and claimed they were apostles, they put them to the test. They didn't just immediately assume that that they weren't apostles. Now, we can do that today. We know there are no apostles, but at this time, there were still living apostles. John was still alive. I don't think there were any others, but this is a reflection on what they had been doing over the last... Uh, several decades, so there were still living apostles, and they examined anyone who came along and found them to be liars, and it made it clear there were several qualities that had to be present, several things that were true of a an apostle. Now, remember, the word apostle was used in two in two senses in the New Testament. There's a general sense, and there was a technical sense. At its very root level, the word apostle has to do with someone who is commissioned to perform a particular task. Someone who's commissioned to perform a particular task. Well, what's important is to define who was commissioned and what the task was. So that anyone, in a general sense, that was asked to do something by a local church could be said to be an apostle. If I sent you on an errand to go to uh, Office Depot to pick up something, then I would send you, and the Greek verb is apostello. 
and that is the verb cognate to the noun apostolos. But that wouldn't mean that you were an apostle in the same sense of the apostle Paul or the apostle John. And the word is used that way of some men in the New Testament who were sent as missionaries by local congregations. And so it's important to note that the commissioning agent was a local congregation, and the task was to be a missionary. So they would be an apostle in lowercase sense. Now, we don't use that terminology today because it's just too confusing. The apostle in the uppercase sense, capital A, was a man who was commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to go and found and establish churches and to build up the membership in those churches spiritually and then to move on. He was not a local church pastor, although pastoring in a local church may have come under his purview at some times. Apostle was one who was a witness to the Lord's teaching and his resurrection. The Apostle Paul fit into this category because the resurrected Lord appeared to him. I think it is also possible that he had been a witness, though not a believer, but a witness to the Lord's teaching. If you uh, examine the chronology in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul probably came to know the Lord when he was in his mid-twenties. And that would have been sometime around 37, 38, 39 A.D. Well, the Apostle Paul, being trained to be a rabbi under that uh, very great rabbi of the first century Gamaliel, would have been sent to uh, Jerusalem by his family to undergo rabbinical training when he was bar mitzvah, when he was 14. That meant that if he's saved, let's say, just to, just to give the benefit of the doubt, let's say he's saved in, in 39, and he had been in Jerusalem for 10 years. That would have put him in Jerusalem before the Lord even started his ministry or at the beginning. So it's very possible that the Apostle Paul witnessed the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ during the first advent. It would be impossible if you were a... Uh, if you were a, a resident of Jerusalem, to have been unaware of the Lord's ministry during his three years on the earth. But there were many who did not believe on him until after the ascension. Now, we can't prove that the Apostle Paul ever heard the Lord before he was saved, but it certainly seems reasonable when you collate the chronological evidence. So I, I tend to think that there's good evidence for that. Nevertheless, what, what Peter outlined in Acts 1 was that an apostle should be a witness to the Lord's teaching, his resurrection, and also according to 2 Corinthians 12.12, 12, an apostle was accompanied by various signs and wonders and miracles. These were his calling card. They established his credentials that they would call attention to the apostle and to his teaching. And so the Ephesian church would evaluate the claims of someone who said they were an apostle, and they found them lacking, and they demonstrated that they were, that they were uh, liars. Verse 3, we went on to study, and we saw that they are again, uh, this congregation is again uh, commended 
for two things, perseverance and endurance. If you have King James or New King James, it also includes the phrase, and have labored, which is not in the, uh, in the best manuscripts and should be deleted from the uh, King James or New King James. Uh, the Lord says, you have persevered. Again, this is our word, hupomone. It means endurance, which is the way I prefer to translate that word. Hanging in there in the midst of trials and testing. And you have persevered and have patience. You have persevered and have patience. It's not really the word for patience, which is the word makrothemia. This is a a repetition of the verb used earlier, bastadzo. B-A-S-T-A-Z-O. Oh, and bastazo is the word that was used in the previous verse to say that you cannot bear those who are evil. It had to do with carrying a weight. And so when the Lord uses this word again in this last couplet at the beginning of verse 3, it is connecting it back to the previous couplet and the situation with these false apostles. And the inference there is that they have now persevered, and I would translate it perseverance in this, in this passage. So the first word is hupomone. You have endured and you have persevered, or you could even translate it, you have uh, just put up with the situation. And that would, what situation is that? That would be the situation that developed because of these false teachers after they were kicked out of the church and not allowed to minister and after their uh, fraudulent claims apostleship were exposed then they went off somewhere else started their own little cult group and were the source of persecution and adversity and hostility and uh, maligning and all kinds of other problems for the uh, Believers in Corinth. So this became a major problem. I mean, in Ephesus. So this became a major problem there. So the Lord commends them because they've endured in the midst of these difficulties and they have put up with the situation for my name's sake. And that should be understood to be because of my character. Names in the scripture often are indicative of character. Jesus Christ was named Jesus from the Hebrew Yeshua, which has its roots in the verb Yasha, meaning to save or to deliver. See, names were not just chosen because they were popular or because people liked the sound of the name or something like that, but they were chosen because they said something about the character or the place in life of the individual. I like the way the... uh, Puritans used to name their children names like temperance and patience and it emphasized character. And we often laugh at that, but there was a real value to that. So the concept of naming in Scripture said something about the individual and the individual's character. So when we see a phrase like, for my name's sake, it's an idiom emphasizing on the basis of my character. And so because the Ephesians had matured and understood doctrine to a certain level, 
this motivated them toward obedience and consistent obedience, even in the midst of difficulty, hostility, and opposition. And then the commendation section of verses 2 and 3 concludes by saying, And you have not become weary. You have not become weary. And this last word, translated not become weary, is from the verb kapiao. K-O-P-I-A-O. And this is related to its cognate noun, kapas, meaning labor or toil. So you see how, what beautiful literature this is. You see how the use of these cognates and the repetition ties everything together for us into an integrated whole. As he has spoken earlier, praising them for their labor, he now uses this, word, this verb to emphasize the fact that despite the hardship, Despite the difficulty, they weren't whining, they weren't complaining, they were hanging in there. They were, they were consistently applying doctrine no matter how difficult things become. It's a high praise. It's one of the most significant praise sections and commendations in all of these epistles, these short epistles, these short evaluation reports in Revelation 2 and 3. Now the reason I'm emphasizing that is because the Lord just turns right around and seems to really slap them in the face in verse 4. And if you listen to how this is usually taught, you wonder how he could have even praised these believers in the first place. In verse 4, the Lord shifts and says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Nevertheless is actually the strong contrastive conjunction, which should be translated but. And he's emphasizing a strong contrast. This is what you're doing well, but this is what you're doing wrong. He says, I have this against you. Or I have literally that this is not there. It's just I have against you that you have left your first love. You have left your first love. Now, the way that this normally comes across in English, we think of first, we, also, we think of first in terms of, of time. We think of first in terms of sequence. We think in first in terms of first, second, and third. And often this is the way this passage is preached. And as I uh, peruse various commentaries, this is often the way in which uh, this is handled. And where that leads you is into a real trap because the interpretation then comes out to be something like you've left your first love and so if that, that first love then is that love for Jesus at the beginning of your Christian life. Where that leads you in terms, leads nearly everybody in terms of interpretation is to say something like this, that in the first previous two verses the Ephesians are commended because of their doctrinal orthodoxy. They're holding everybody to a high standard of doctrinal orthodoxy, and they're challenging those who have false claims. But they're doing it without love. And so they're just this cold, dead orthodoxy there. And they just don't love each other. And the problem is that this sets up a false 
dichotomy between doctrine on the one hand and doctrinal accuracy on the one hand and love on the other hand. And these are not inconsistent in the Scripture. The Scripture never presents doctrinal accuracy as somehow uh, antithetical to having love. But see, this is the spirit of the age. This is the ecumenical attitude that somehow we ought to love everybody and it doesn't matter that we have these doctrinal differences. Let's just sweep them under the carpet and all hold hands and sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. And you see this over and over again, not only in broad ecumenical movement, but it's happening and has happened more and more in evangelical churches in the last 20 years. In fact, I am a believer that what we are witnessing, although nobody is saying this, but you've heard it here first, 50 years from now when it plays itself out, you'll know where it came from. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but what I'm seeing on the scene today is just a historical replay of what happened at the end of the 19th century. At the end of the 19th century, you'd had the influx of what was called German rationalism and Protestant liberal theology that infected the churches where they no longer believed in the supernatural. They were discarding the infallibility of Scripture, the virgin birth, miracles, all of these things. I'm not saying evangelical churches are that far, but they are in much more subtle ways rejecting the sufficiency of Scripture. And let me tell you, the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, those doctrines necessarily mean the Bible is sufficient in every area of life. It's not just in matters of faith and practice. That's the big scam that you'll see in some doctrinal statements. That if uh, that we believe the Bible is inspired in all matters of faith and practice. Well, what about history? What about economics? What about law? What about the origin of the universe? Isn't it inerrant there also? So you see, it's not what they say that's the problem. It's what they're leaving out. But we're seeing this subtle intrusion. The church is looking to philosophy, or, uh, psychology to aid in helping people with their problems. They no longer believe the Bible is absolutely sufficient for every problem, every difficulty we face. When it comes to establishing churches and planting churches, starting new churches like uh, here at West Houston Bible Church, the model that people are going to is sociological studies, group dynamics. Uh, let's not just do what the Bible says, emphasizing that the Bible, that, that God provides the hearer, and that if you teach the word, those who are positive will respond. And instead, they're going to all kinds of commercial uh, models, advertising models, marketing models, in order to promote the church. Well, these are things the Apostle Paul never knew about. The Apostle John never knew about them, and yet the apostles turned the world upside down simply by teaching the truth and letting God the Holy Spirit produce the fruit. And so we have to be very careful today because what happens when methodology is wrong and when methodology rejects the sufficiency of Scripture, then before long what you believe begins to shift and to drift, and you get back into the same problem of liberalism that we had a hundred years ago. So that is part of the problem. And part of what happens is this rejection of the importance of keeping doctrine pure, as if there's this conflict. And if you look, understand doctrine correctly, not simply as it's used by a lot of people, 
just abstract theology, but that doctrine includes application. I had a seminary professor one time that said, theology that doesn't entail good application is bad theology. And he's right. Doctrine is inherently applicational. It's not just academic exercise, intellectual gymnastics. It is learning to think biblically. And you have to learn to think biblically so that all the issues of life flow out of your thinking. So we can't get into that trap. If we look at any Greek lexicon on this word, translated first, this word is, is the Greek word protos. P-R-O-T-O-S. And it not only means first in sequence, but it also has the idea of that which is foremost, that which is most important, and that which is of the highest priority. And so we, when we come to this phrase, there's not a juxtaposition. You see, if you take it the other way, you wonder how they can have any spirituality at all. If they've left their first love, which is any kind of orientation to Christ, then how could they be praised for any spiritual values such as endurance and hanging in there? But obviously they've got, a simil- they've got some spiritual growth. They've got a certain amount of uh, spiritual maturity. But what's happened is that unlike that congregation in Ephesus, they have lost the priority love. They have lost that foremost, most important love, which is personal love for God. They have lost the love that characterizes a mature believer. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. See, this was a mature spiritual love. Based upon what Jesus said in John 13:34 and 35, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another, and by this <clears throat> all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, this love for one another isn't some sort of sentimental, emotional, superficial love. This is a love that flows out of a relationship with God. When we put the chart up on the overhead, I talk about the spiritual skills, that personal love for God precedes impersonal love for all mankind. That's because our relationship with God becomes the environment within which genuine love for others develops, that impersonal love for other believers that is not based on who they are or what they do, but it's based on who Jesus Christ is and what was done on the cross. So they've lost that this mature love. They are still operating in the area of the basic spiritual skills. They're still, they have grown to a measure of uh, spiritual maturity, probably spiritual adolescence, but they are no longer at the level of maturity that the congregation had 30 years earlier when the Apostle Paul wrote. Well, at this point, I want to take just a few moments before we wrap up. I know we have the congregational meeting, so I don't want to go too late. But I want to look at a few characteristics of a healthy church. A few characteristics of a healthy church. And to do that, I want to turn back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> and I want to tie this into who we are and where we are at West Houston Bible Church, establishing a 
new congregation. What are our priorities? Where are we going? Why are we here? What should be the characteristics of a healthy church that, that we look at in terms of our own congregation? The context here is the beginning of the church, very first day of the church age, Pentecost, approximately A.D. 33. The context is Peter's sermon. He has just given his uh, message on the day of Pentecost and <clears throat> challenges, the con- challenges his hearers to be saved, verse 40. And the response is given in verse 41. Then those who uh, gladly receive, actually it's the Greek word apodekomai, which means to welcome the message, they responded with positive volition to the gospel. They were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added. So he after preaching this message, had 3,000 converts. Now, so often what happens in churches is they think, oh, that's what should characterize Christianity. Now, this is what characterized the birth. You never look at an adult and say, okay, you, your characteristics should be the same as, as when you were born. You know, there are different stages in the life of the church, in, in the church age, just as there are in the life of an individual. I don't want to focus on some of those things. You can get into a real trap going to Acts and trying to uh, call out uh, various principles for uh, healthy churches. We have to be, be very careful in what we examine and how we evaluate it in light of the mature reflections of the epistles and other things. Okay, what we see is that there is a response, but the thing that comes out of this is that there is an evangelistic emphasis in the early church, and it goes throughout the whole New Testament period and continues. The one mark of a healthy church is evangelism. There is a concern for the lost, to communicate the gospel, not simply in terms of corporate evangelism from the pulpit. Even a pastor, though I certainly don't have the gift of evangelism, the pastor is challenged by Paul to do the work of an evangelist. And I have always tried to make it a point to, even if it's only in two sentences, to make sure the gospel is in any, any message, any time I teach. You never know who may be there that is not saved, that they need to hear that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for their sins and salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. But it's not just the pastor, it's the congregation. This is the responsibility of individual believers, that they are excited about the truth, which is the gospel, and they are communicating that to people in their periphery. Whoever they run into, friends, family members, they are giving the gospel to people. Maybe it's just handing them a tract. Maybe it's... uh, uh, that doesn't mean you have to go around and hit everybody over the head with the gospel, but there is a certain uh, excitement and enthusiasm and passion in the life of a believer because he wants to make sure that those who are not saved hear the gospel. And a, you know, when I die at the end of whatever it is, 20, 25, 30 years that I'm the pastor here, I would like it to be said above that that not only was this a church that had sound doctrine but there were people at West Houston Bible Church who loved to
to witness, that that was a church that was involved in evangelism. And I don't mean the kind of program evangelism that you often see in a lot of churches where they come in with these different uh, structured evangelism training programs and, okay, now we're all going to team up in groups of two or three and go out and knock on doors and do that sort of thing. But a genuine desire to give the gospel to those who are unsaved that flows out of your own spiritual growth and your own relationship with the Lord. That is real, genuine, personal evangelism. It's not something that is artificially created through uh, various programs. And another thing that I would like to see is what we have in the next verse, in verse 42. It says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The word there translated continued steadfastly is a Greek word proskartereo, which means to be faithful to someone or to be faithful to something, to busy oneself with something, to be busily engaged in something, or to be devoted to something. In other words, it means making it a high priority, something that you have a passion about that you should have a passion about learning the Word. Remember those days when you were first saved? Remember those days when you first heard somebody teach you sound doctrine, how excited you were, how you couldn't wait to get to Bible class? You weren't going to miss Bible class. That kind of a passion, that's what this means. They were devoted continuously to the apostles' doctrine and to fellowship. Two things. Now, if you look at your English... The way it's probably punctuated, it looks like it's a list of four things, but it's not. It's a list of two things, apostles' doctrine and fellowship. The last two things that are listed are an appositional phrase. An appositional phrase is, you might put it in parentheses in your Bible. An appositional phrase is a phrase that's inserted to explain the previous word. The word is fellowship. Now, we all know that people get involved in all kinds of funny things about fellowship. You have fellowship churches, fellowship community church, fellowship Bible church, fellowship this, fellowship that. Oh, we want to go to a church where there's good fellowship. And uh, what does that mean? And it's always talking about some kind of social life. There was a time when I even pastored a church called Fellowship Bible Church. And I had more fellowship and Churches that didn't ever talk about fellowship than I did in that church. It doesn't have anything to do with basic social life. You can have really great social life with all kinds of people. This passage tells, defines what fellowship is. Fellowship is defined in terms of breaking of bread, that is, communion, which is where the word communion comes from. It has to do with fellowship. Communion and prayer. Now, who are we having fellowship with in the Lord's table and in prayer, it's with God. See, this was the priority of this, the early believers. It's doctrine and fellowship with God. That's the foundation of a healthy church. When you have a group of believers that are truly devoted to doctrine and to fellowship with God, personal evangelism is going to be a natural outgrowth over the course of their spiritual growth. A desire to, for missions, which is part of evangelism, is also going to be a characteristic of a church that has got doctrine at its, at its heart because they want to see the Word uh, going out, not only to those who are local, who are not saved, but also to other countries, other nations. 
And a church should be known as being a church that has a a heart for missions, a priority for missions, supporting missionaries. And uh, we're a young church right now. We can't make that a priority because it's more important for us to become established first so that from a position of strength we can then support missions. That doesn't mean that I'm saying that you shouldn't give to any missionaries individually, but the priority for us right now is to become solidly established and who we are so that as growth takes place from a position of strength, we can, we can then have a solid support for, uh, for missionaries. I remember years ago I was involved with a church who started off rather idealistically saying we're going to begin with a strong missions emphasis and we're going to give 20% of everything that comes in to missions. Well, they never got to a point where they could afford a building or get established because they were giving so much to missions that they didn't have anything left over to get themselves established initially. So you have to put first things first and recognize where you are in your own growth process. So in Acts 2.42, we see what the emphasis is. It's on doctrine. It's on fellowship. Fellowship with God then becomes the environment for fellowship with other believers. This is seen in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, where John tells his readers, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you. That's doctrine. Doctrine related to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you also may have fellowship with us. See, there's the teaching of the Word and doctrine so that there can be true, genuine, biblical fellowship. That is, partnership and uh, social life even, between fellow believers. And then he says, And truly our fellowship with, with, is with our Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. See, that's the framework. If there's no true, genuine fellowship with God, which is, according to John in the first epistle, is based upon sound doctrine, that's what John really gets at. If you don't have right doctrine, you can't have fellowship with us. Because you don't have fellowship with God. If your doctrine is screwed up, there's no fellowship with God, and there's no fellowship with other believers, I don't care how much rapport you have with other believers. It's not biblical fellowship. It's just common everyday friendship, social life, whatever it is, but it's not true biblical fellowship. Fellowship with God always precedes, precedes true biblical fellowship with man. In the same way, we can say that love for God, personal love for God, precedes love for man. Before you can learn what it means to love other believers as Christ loved us, you have to learn a lot of doctrine and you have to learn a lot about God and His essence and His plan and His purposes. And it's only within that environment that we, that environment that we can truly come to have the kind of love for others that Christ had for us. We have to remember that fellowship with God doesn't replace fellowship with man. But it is the environment, but fellowship with man operates only within that environment of true biblical fellowship with God. One other thing that we see as we look at Acts chapter 2 is because of their devotion to doctrine, because of their fellowship with God, it flowed out into true biblical fellowship, love, concern, and care for one another in the body of Christ. They didn't just come and sit in their pews and say, well, we're going to respect everybody's privacy and I'm not going to talk to anybody. 
They were involved with one another to a profound level. In verse 44 it says, Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. Now if we stopped there, we'd all go become a bunch of socialists. This, that's not what this is saying. This isn't saying that they just all sold their property. This is 3,000 people. And on the next week it's going to be another probably 10 or 12. In Acts chapter 3, 4,000 men become believers. We're not told how many women and children in that group. So I think that within about a week you had about 10,000 new believers in Jerusalem. Well, they're not all selling their property and putting it all in the same bank account and saying, oh, you know, we're just all going to share everything in common. That's not what it's saying. Verse 45, they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all critical phrase, as anyone had need. In other words, they were only doing that in order to help out others within the body of Christ who had genuine needs and problems. There was a willingness to share of who and what they were, the substance that God had provided for them, with other believers who had genuine need because they were genuinely concerned about others in the body of Christ. This is what Jesus is talking about when he said that we're to love one another as I have loved you, and that it is by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying that we need to go out and cash in all of our retirement plans and start uh, giving money to others who aren't doing quite so well? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the evidence, this was just one evidence of many, in a growing, healthy congregation is their concern for one another. It's a concern expressed by just downright being friendly with one another. It's a concern that's expressed through prayer for one another. It's a concern that's expressed through uh, realizing that if somebody else has a significant problem or need or situation in their life and you have the resources to help them, that you're willing to do it. And not just say, well, you know, let somebody else handle the problem. It is an application of doctrine in the realm of personal relationship. You don't even have to know the individual to be able to help them and be concerned about that. And this is clearly part of the operation of the, of the early church. You see it evidence with the widow's list that Paul talks about in, uh, in 1 Timothy. Things of that nature. And this characterizes a church. But these are not programs that are imposed on the congregation from the leadership. The leadership didn't get together and say, oh, well, let's start uh, selling our property here. And, and Barnabas, why don't you sell your property so you can give to the, the widows who have need, which is what happens later on. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira found out that Barnabas had sold his land and, and, uh, and given the money to take care of the uh, widows that were in the congregation. And so they decided they wanted that kind of approbation also. So they sold off part of their land, claimed they, they or sold off their land, claimed they gave all the money to the church when they held back some. And the Lord disciplined them. They instantly died the sin unto death, the first biblical case of being slain in the Spirit. But this is a uh, characteristic of the early church, a genuine care and concern for people. And it comes out of the spiritual growth and maturity of the individuals in the congregation. Not from some artificial, some externally imposed program that is typical of what you find in most churches. So when we look at a healthy church, this is what we're moving towards. This is what the Lord is doing in a local congregation. These are the kinds of things that we should 
uh, hope to see in our congregation as we grow and as we mature. And as I was thinking this last week about what I would like to see as a reputation for West Houston Bible Church as we go through the years, is not only is this a congregation that is uh, concerned about sound doctrine and theological accuracy and and in-depth exposition of Scripture and, and solid biblical thinking, but that these are people who are concerned about applying the Word. They're concerned about those who are lost, those who need to hear the Gospel. They're concerned not only in terms of personal evangelism, but also in terms of supporting uh, missions. Uh, we see this throughout the book of Acts, the desire to witness and the, the, the numbers of people that were were saved as a result of that personal evangelism, but also a congregation that grows to maturity that doesn't lose that priority love, which is, first of all, a personal love for God the Father, which flows into a true, genuine care and concern for other believers, whether it's expressed through impersonal love, unconditional love, anonymous love, whatever it is, it is a genuine uh, warmth and concern for other believers that grows out of the individual spiritual growth of each individual. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to be challenged by your word, to recognize that these things are, are not only true for an Ephesian congregation 2,000 years ago, but they're true for us today, that we need to be challenged by these same priorities as we will be through the various priorities uh, and various uh, characteristics outlined in the other six epistles at the beginning of Revelation. Father, we pray that we might not just sit back and say, well, this applies to somebody else, not to me. It applies to each and every one of us. We need to be challenged with the fact that our first priority is to, is to know you. But as Jesus said, when he summarized the law, it is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourself. It is an advance to true spiritual maturity where your character, your grace, and your love are manifested in our lives. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation, unsure of their, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. God the Father expressed His love for the entire human race by sending His Son to die on the cross for our sins, every single sin in human history, your sins, my sins, everyone's sins. By putting your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in His death on the cross, understanding that He died to pay your penalty, you can have eternal life right now. All it takes is an act of faith, of trust, of belief. The instant you put your trust in Christ, God the Father in His omniscience knows what you're trusting in for salvation. And at that instant, you're regenerated, born again, given eternal life that can never be taken from you. This is your opportunity to secure that eternal destiny. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.